All right, so this week we're going to jump into uh, chapter 13, and we're going to look briefly back at what we looked at last week. Last week was um, the beginning of another one of the breaks in the action. Um, the seventh trumpet has been blown, and we're seeing the things that John has seen or is going to see. We're talking future. And one of the things he saw were, were these great visions. He saw three things. He saw the dragon, he saw the woman, and he saw the male child. And what we determined was that the dragon is Satan. And the reason we determined that is because that's exactly what the passage goes on to say. Uh, the dragon represents Satan. I believe, and I'm not alone, that the woman represents Israel. And why that's important is because the role Israel plays in the end times. And then finally, the child is Messiah. Uh, one of the things that I, I tried to stress last week was that this whole issue with Israel is, is highly significant if you're going to understand not only the book of Revelation, but Daniel and other prophetic books because of the role that Israel plays in the end times and why suddenly does John see this vision of the male child? Why does he see the woman, the woman being persecuted? But why, why the Messiah? Because he comes from the Jews. And as Western Christians, sometimes we downplay that or we just ignore it or don't even think about it, that Jesus Christ was and is a Jew. To this day, he's a Jew. When we see him in glory, he will be a Jew. He will not have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, I don't know exactly what he's going to look like, but probably nothing like any image that's ever been made of him. He is a Jew. Why is that important? Because he was born a Jew. He was born through the line of David, tribe of Judah, and he came to redeem his own. And we are grafted into the equation as Gentiles. But the day is coming when he will finish what he started. He will complete what God promised, the redemption of a remnant of the Jews. And so that's why I think he has this little aside in chapter 12, and he sees these three pretty significant characters, the first one being Satan. In chapter 12, this is 11, it's a typo, but chapter 12 ended with this statement. It says, the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan is angry. Satan is doing everything in his power in the tribulation period to get rid of anybody who is remotely associated with God or the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So he's attacking Israel, he's attacking her offspring, he's attacking, I think that's a direct reference to anyone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, and we know there will be believers during the tribulation. The church is gone, we've been raptured, the tribulation starts, and yet 144,000 Jews come to faith in Christ because of the work of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and they become witnesses and they save Jews and they save Gentiles. And so there will be others who Satan attacks. He's attacking Jews, he's attacking Christians all throughout the second half of the tribulation. But it ends with that statement that he's standing on the sand of the sea. And yet in chapter 13, it starts out with this phrase, and then I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, we're going to get introduced this morning to two beasts. 
And uh, we got to figure out who they are and what they represent. But the first one he sees is one that's rising out of the sea, and it's described as having ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. So what is this? What's going on here? Who or what is this beast, and what should we know about it? Well, what's interesting is if you go back to last week, we... we saw this sign in heaven. The second sign was the red dragon. Who's the red dragon? Verse nine goes on and tells us in chapter 12 that it's Satan. And it says, he, the red dragon, had seven heads, 10 horns, and on his head, seven diadems. So it's the exact same phrase used in chapter one, verse one, or chapter 13, verse one. So some have jump to the conclusion that, well, the beast coming out of the sea must be Satan because it's the same description. And that seems logical, right? The, he's seeing something that looks exactly like what he saw in chapter 12. But we, we got to dig a little bit deeper to figure out what's going on. Are they one and the same? Is the beast coming out of the sea and is the dragon, are they the same thing because of the way John describes them? They're obviously very similar, Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, but are they one and the same? We got to look for differences, and there are differences listed in this passage. Chapter 12, verse 17 says, Dra the dragon, Satan, is standing on the sand of the sea. That's how we ended chapter 12. How does chapter 13 open? The beast is rising out of the sea. So you have two different entities, two different individuals, one standing on the shore, one is coming out of the sea. But they're both described in the same way to John. So what should that tell us? Well, they're obviously very similar as far as John can tell. But he goes on and he describes this one coming out of the sea with greater detail. He says, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. This is already getting really kind of strange, isn't it? This is that imagery we usually associate with the book of Revelation. Kind of bizarre, all kinds of mixed imagery. You've got a, a, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And then it goes on and it says, And to it, the beast coming out of the sea, the dragon gave his power, his throne, and his great authority. They can't be one and the same. They're two different individuals, two different entities. We haven't determined what, what this beast is yet, but all we know is it's got a strange appearance to it. It is similar to the dragon or Satan, but it's being given its power from Satan. Now, one of the reasons I think John was introduced to Satan in chapter 12, even though I think John pretty much knew about Satan and realized Satan is alive and well, I think he's being kind of encouraged by God to understand that during the tribulation period, Satan will be actively involved. And as we've said all along in the last 12 weeks, that during the tribulation period, the intensity of spiritual warfare will increase exponentially. It will be worse than it's ever been on this planet. There is spiritual warfare going on right now. There is spiritual warfare going on in your life right now. There is spiritual warfare going on around this church and in this church of all kinds, much of which we don't see. But during the tribulation, it will be worse than it's ever been on this planet. So it says that 
Satan, the dragon, gave his power, his throne, and his great authority to this beast coming out of the sea. So what we see here is a sharing of power, a sharing of authority. And these three words that are used here, power, throne, and authority, are pretty critical to help us understand this individual or entity, whatever it is, coming out of the sea. Paul told the Ephesian believers this about Satan, about his power. You, Christian, because he's writing to Christians, used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Now stop right there. What does that tell you about your condition prior to Christ? You were in the world, you lived like the rest of the world, and you obeyed the devil. Now, if I could sit down with each one of you, you'd go, no, no, I didn't obey the devil. I was a good person. I just wasn't a Christian. No, according to Paul, you were under the control of and you obeyed the devil. And we'll see why. Because he's the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He, he controls things that you can't see. Now, I don't want you to walk out of the room this morning afraid of Satan. There's no need for me or you to fear Satan, but we do need to realize that he does have power on this earth and he uses it on a regular basis. He is the spirit who is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So everyone you know, and that means everyone you know who is not in Christ, guess what? They have the spirit of Satan at work in them. And guys, that's, that's a pretty serious statement, but it's reality. And so that should emphasize for us the need to share the gospel with everyone we know because they are under the control of the enemy. They can't get out of the control of the enemy. It doesn't mean that they all do wicked things. It doesn't mean they worship Satan. It doesn't mean that that they, every word that comes out of their mouth is demonic. It just means that they are under his control until they place their faith in Jesus Christ and are set free from that. Just like every Jew who lived in captivity in Egypt was under the control of who? Pharaoh until God set them free. It didn't matter how much money they had, didn't matter how much power they had, how big their family was, didn't matter how old they were, didn't matter how young they were, they were under the control of Pharaoh until set free by God. Same thing's true on this earth on a spiritual plane. So we hear from Paul that he is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is working in ways that you can't see, and he has a lot of helpers. We've already been introduced to demons who are going to be released on the earth, as told to us in Revelation. So he's got power, real concrete power, and he's going to share it with this thing coming out of the, the sea. He has a throne. If you were here for the first half, in the first few chapters of the book, we have Jesus speaking to the churches, and he addresses these seven churches. One of them is in Pergamum, and here's what he says to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, wouldn't that be a fun statement to hear? You know, if he were to come to us today, Ken, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. You mean the town I live in is where Satan lives? And the answer is yes. He's writing to Pergamum, but this is applicable to any of the churches in any city, in any nation, at any time. You live where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed. So Antipas was 
obviously killed for his faith, persecuted, because they live in where Satan's throne is. And then he goes on and says, where Satan dwells. That's another fun thing to think about. Fortunately, I live in Arlington, not Fort Worth, because Fort Worth is obviously where Satan dwells. Um, <laughs> Satan wouldn't have anything to do with Arlington, um, <laughs> except for the highway system. Um, what is he telling us? He's telling us that Satan has authority. Satan has a throne. He lives on this planet. He controls this planet. He has power over this planet given to him by God, but it's still power. God limits that power, but he still has power. And so he's got power, a throne. He reigns, he rules. And what does he do? He gives it to this thing coming out of the sea. See, I think what Jesus is telling the people in Pergamum, the Christians in Pergamum, is that Satan hates your ever-living guts. You are in his town. You are living in his community, and he hates you. He hates what you are doing to his community. And so Antipas died for it. Others were being persecuted for it, but it's the same thing that's happening all around the world today. Satan controlled, had dominion over Pergamum, just like he does over every other city, every other nation in this world. There is no Christian nation in this world. There are some nations that have more Christians living in them, but there are no Christian nations. Every nation on this continent in one form or fashion is under the control of Satan. Some more visibly, some more obviously, but you can't just say, well, it's Iraq, it's Iran, it's um, Russia, it's China, it's North Korea. No, he rules this world. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to tell the people in Pergamum, and by extension, you and I. And in Pergamum, he was worshiped. How? They didn't have a statue to Satan, but they had statues to any and every other God you could think of. And they also had a throne dedicated to Zeus. And see what the scriptures tell me and what the scriptures tell you is that when you worship anything other than God, you are in essence worshiping Satan. And it doesn't matter whether it's a statue made of gold or wood that you sit on a stand or if it's a TV that sits on your wall or a car that sits in your garage, or the boat that's at the lake, or it, whatever you worship that is more important to you than God is ultimately worship of the enemy because he's distracting you from God. See, Satan doesn't need you to have an idol of him. He just needs you to have an idol that's anything other than God. He's got power, he's got authority, he's got a throne, and he is out to persecute Christians. And one of the ways he persecutes you is by distracting you away from God. Not, it's not always pain. It's not always suffering. It's sometimes blessing in the form of things that become your gods, that become what you worship instead of God. And that, in essence, is a form of persecution for a believer. When you get distracted from the things of God, he's persecuting you because he's taking you away from the very thing you need most, God. So he's got a throne, he's got power, but he's also got authority, and he's giving all this to this thing coming out of the sea. Jesus says he is the ruler of this world. Again, Jesus says it. 
Not me, Jesus. Satan rules this world. He is the God of this world, according to Scripture. And, and again, not everybody in this world worships Satan outrightly, but inevitably, they worship Satan if they're not worshiping God Almighty. And his power extends everywhere. Doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter the language you speak, the color of your skin, wherever you are on this planet, that is his domain. That is where his throne is. That's where his power is. That's where his authority is. And he can share that power and authority with whoever he wishes. And he does it all the time. And what does he do in this passage? He shares it with this thing coming out of the sea, but he also offered it to Jesus, didn't he? Remember the temptation in the wilderness? He offered him his authority. What did he say? To you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me. I've been given this authority over this world and I'll give it to you, Jesus. If you then worship me, it'll all be yours. He had the right, he had the power. He could have given that to Jesus. Why would he want to give that to Jesus? So that Jesus would be distracted from his mission. But see, Jesus didn't come to have that kind of authority. He came to do the will of his father. But Jesus has, I mean, Satan has power. He has a throne. He has authority. And he can give it to whoever he wishes. And we see him in this passage giving it to this thing coming out of the sea. This thing coming out of the sea that looks very similar to him because it's got 10 diadems, it's got crowns that symbolize Satan's power. And I think what John is describing is he's seeing someone, something coming out of the sea that is obviously tied to who? Satan. And they have a symbiotic relationship. What we're going to see in this passage, and we'll just kind of lay it out now so that it kind of makes sense as we unfold these two creatures, there is what's called the unholy trinity in Scripture. And this is going to give us an idea of who they are. Satan has always aspired to be God. That's his goal. That's what he wants. That's what he attempted to do when he rebelled. He wants to be God. He wants to replace God. So he is the false God. But Satan has always attempted to replicate everything that God does. He is the um, deceiver. And one of the ways he deceives is he tries to emulate God. Well, God has a son. So he has a savior. So this thing that we're about to see as we'll see, represents the Antichrist. Antichrist is the false Christ. He is the false savior. He's the false Messiah. And there's going to be a second beast that we're going to see in just a minute who is the false prophet, who is the representation of the Holy Spirit. And you see, here's Satan trying to replicate the Trinity, but it's this unholy Trinity. And he's going to try to once again, deceive the world into believing that he is what they're looking for. He has everything they need. So this thing coming out of the sea is actually going to be the Antichrist, as we'll see unfolded as we move through the rest of the book. Who is he? He's this individual who's going to have so much power, so much authority, so much control over the world during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and it all comes from one source, Satan. And that should tell you how bad it's going to be. Now, verse 3, we get this description of someone having a wound, a mortal wound, and he gets healed. And we're going to come back to that because that's going to be pretty significant. 
So I want to move on. Something happens that forces or causes the people living on the earth during the second half of the tribulation to worship the dragon, Satan, and the beast because he had given his authority to the beast. So what do we see? We see in the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, right before Christ comes back, we see this worship of Satan. You see how bad things are getting? Now it's obvious. Now it's not hidden. It's not oblique. It's obvious. They're worshiping Satan and they're worshiping the beast. And so we, we have to say, well, is it a kingdom? Many have said, well, it represents a kingdom. Others say it represents an individual. I say it's both. I think it represents antichrist, but you can't be antichrist if you don't have something you're ruling over. What good is a power? What good is power, authority, and a throne if you don't have something to rule over? You're not really a king. You're really not in control. You're really not powerful. So I think it's referring to antichrist because he's a ruler, but he's also got a kingdom. We'll be introduced later on in the book to Babylon the Great. And we're not going to talk about it this morning, but we're going to see that, that Satan gives this power and authority to this individual who's going to rule over a literal nation and rule over the literal world during that period of time with power, a throne, and authority. It's, it's a real person. It's a real thing that's going to happen on this earth. And it's not going to be a good time. It's not going to be a fun time to be alive because of all that this individual with a kingdom and power that comes with that kingdom is going to bring. So what I want to do is I want to go back to Daniel chapter 7. Remember we said last week, you can't understand Revelation if you don't go back and look at Daniel and other prophetic books. You can't understand Daniel if you don't have Revelation. So if, if you don't believe in Revelation or you don't take Revelation seriously, you'll never understand what the book of uh, Daniel's talking about because here's a vision that he has. He, he sees four beasts. Daniel saw a lot of things. He, he kind of is like the Old Testament version of John. He sees visions that are kind of bizarre and out there and they don't make any sense. I don't think they made any sense to him except those that were ex explained to him by God. But he sees this, these four beasts. One's a lion, One's a bear and one's a leopard. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what John sees coming out of the sea, except it's in one form. John sees four beasts, three are mentioned here, or, or Daniel does. John sees them amalgamated into one. But he also sees a fourth beast. Listen to this. It's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It has great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. In other words, different from the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And it had 10 horns. Now, can you imagine Daniel seeing this stuff? And he's like, what in the world is this? See, there's a lot of imagery given to us in Daniel, much of which is never explained. Some is, but a lot's not. But that's why we have the book of Revelation, because we get the end of the story. We get the completion of the prophecy. We get to see what God was intending and what God was foreshadowing in this book. So what do we have here? We go back to Revelation chapter 13, and he says, well, this is actually back in, in Daniel chapter 7, further clarification. As for the fourth beast that he sees, now keep in mind, he's seen three literal looking animals but he sees a fourth beast and it doesn't look like an animal. 
a lion, a bear, and, and now he's in a leopard, and now he sees a fourth beast, but there's no animal characteristics to it. He says, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. So what we know from later in Daniel, those three animals represent kingdoms, past kingdoms that are now gone, but this one's gonna be different. It's a fourth beast, it's a fourth kingdom on earth, and it's gonna be different, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces, and then it goes on and talks about the 10 horns. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former. So once again, you've got a kingdom and you've got a king, a kingdom and a king, a, a kingdom and a ruler, and he's different. So Daniel is giving, being given this vision by God of something that has not yet happened. To this day, it has not yet happened. Didn't happen in his day, didn't happen in Jesus' day. It hadn't happened in John's day, and it still happened to happen in our day. There's something coming, a kingdom unlike any other kingdom, and a ruler unlike any other ruler. When is that going to come? That's going to come in the tribulation. And he's going to put down three kings. He's going to overpower, overtake. He's going to take complete control. He shall speak words against the Most High. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, keep in mind, this is thousands of years before John writes the book of Revelation. But what does it say? This very different king ruling over a very different kingdom is going to speak words of blasphemy, basically, against the Most High, God, and he's going to wear out the saints. So thousands of years before John sees his vision, Daniel sees a vision. Let's go back to chapter 13 of Revelation. Verse 5, the beast coming out of the sea was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Thousands of years have separated this. Now, you could say, well, John, obviously, as a Jew, knew about Daniel, and he's just picking up on Daniel and adding to it. Well, you could say that. But you're basically saying the Bible is not divine. The Bible is not inspired. The Bible is not the byproduct of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the pens of men. So why do we study it? See, my take is this is John being a, be given a vision thousands of years later that is clarifying a vision given to Daniel. And he's seeing the culmination of that vision. The, the very different king, very different nation. And here he is uttering haughty and blasphemous words against who? Against God Almighty. This beast, this antichrist is going to speak against God and he's going to utter blasphemies against God. He is going to ridicule God. Why? Because he works for Satan. And he's going to do it for 42 months or three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. So we, again, are getting to see what's going to happen in the future. Daniel also says he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. Thousands of years ago, he sees this, and he gets a premonition of picture of what's to come, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. Now, we have already looked at this phrase. It's repeated in the book of Revelation, and it just simply means three and a half years. Time one, times two, and then a half, a half, three and a half. 
So it's, it's still talking about the second half of the tribulation. This beast, the Antichrist, is going to be given power. He's going to blaspheme God, and he's going to attack Israel for how long? Three and a half years. It's exactly what we read in verse 7 of chapter 13 of Revelation. He was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Except those whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Who's that talking about? Well, there are those who would say, this is evidence that the church is going to be on the planet because our names are written in the book of life. Well, the problem with that is, is you, you have no mention of the church throughout the book of Revelation from four all the way to the end. And so the church really isn't a part of this. This is really focusing on the nation of Israel. We, again, as a church, believe the church will have been raptured before this all happens. So who are these individuals? Well, as we said, 144,000 Jews come to faith. They witness to other Jews and other Gentiles. A great multitude will come to faith. Their names will be written in the book of life. All those who are believers in Jesus Christ during the tribulation will be protected, not necessarily from persecution, obviously not from death, because there are many, many martyrs during the tribulation, but they will be redeemed by God. They have a place in heaven, their names are written in the book of life, but everybody else is going to be persecuted and they're gonna be forced to worship this thing, this antichrist, this individual. Well, let's go back to verse three, because I think this is really important to understanding the sway that this guy has over the world. You know, we don't have any leader that I know of in the world today that everybody worships, right? We can't even agree in our own country on one individual. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Half the country's going to hate his guts. So we can't agree, but at this point in time, there's going to be one guy ruling the entire world. And why, why do they worship this one guy? Why do they all transfix on this one individual and give him so much power? Well, verse 3 tells us that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. What's it talking about? There's something going to happen, and I believe what this is describing is something that's going to happen to Antichrist himself. He's going to receive a mortal wound. He's going to basically die, but it says he'll be healed. It's mortal wound, which means it's a death wound, a wound unto death will be healed, and the whole earth will marvel. So he's either going to die or he's going to be near death and he'll be miraculously healed. I think what it's telling us is that he will either feign death, be close to death, or he will literally die and be raised again. Now, why would that be important? Who else do we know died and was raised again? Jesus Christ. Who does this individual represent? He is the false Christ. He's the false Messiah. And his death or near death, whatever it is, and his, quote, resurrection back to life is going to draw the attention of the world. It says the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, this individual. They're amazed. Man, this guy's got power. This guy obviously is divine because he was near death and he raised again. And they marveled. Think about this. When Jesus died, did the world marvel when he raised again? No. 
the disciples didn't even marvel as much as they just feared. It took them a while to finally marvel and go, man, this is fantastic. But the world discounted it and tried to disprove it and tried to say that the disciples stole the body. They didn't marvel. They rejected it. But in this day, they're going to marvel and they're going to worship him. They worship the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. Somehow, some miraculous thing is going to happen to this individual to where he gets the attention of the world. Now, we already know we have media and media. We know about what's happening all around the world in seconds. So whatever this thing is, it's going to be broadcast around the world that this individual, this powerful individual who was either dead or near death and is restored to perfect health is going to be seen and heard by everybody in the world and it will suck them in to the delusion. And he'll, he'll take that power. They'll marvel over this individual. So you've got Satan. He rules this world. He's got this individual called Antichrist who he shares his power with. And this individual will either feign death, literally die, be raised back to life, and the world will marvel. I believe this is not talking about a nation. There are those who say, well, this is the, a nation that died like Rome and it'll come back to power. I don't think that's what this means because it's a mortal wound. I think it's the Antichrist. It's an individual. It's not a nation. And, and I think, it, once again, it's Satan trying to replicate the Trinity, trying to replicate what Jesus did, but in a false way, in a fake way, and all for the, the sake of delusion. Say, this is going to be a terrible time to be alive in this world because the power of Satan is going to be amped up. His hatred of the people of God is going to be amped up. And there's going to be so much demonic activity in the world during those three and a half years, like nothing we can imagine. As bad as things may appear now, they're nothing compared to what's going to happen during these days. And you're going to have the Antichrist who's going to mimic Christ. He's going to even mimic him to the point of being dead and raised again. And people will marvel and they'll worship and they'll give accolades to Satan as the God. Because he's the one giving his power to this individual. You see what's happening? It's like, it's like he's taking all the interest. Anybody who might have an interest in God Almighty is now being sucked into the void, the black hole of Satan and his false Messiah, except for the people of God. And they're under persecution. They're being attacked. They'll all follow the beast and they'll worship he and the dragon. And you can see that the, the teams are being separated, right? You've got the good and the bad, and they're being separated. The majority of the people are following Satan and, and his antichrist, and you've got this little remnant of Jews who are being faithful to Yahweh, and you've got this growing number of believers, but they are being persecuted because it's no longer gray. It's black and white, guys. We live in a, a gray world. We, it's easy to be a Christian in this world, at least right now. Some places it's not, but in this place it is, because we can kind of blend in, and we, we look like a lot of people in the world, but see, in this day, it's going to be very black and white to the point of, if you're one of his, you've got a mark on your forehead or on your wrist. You'll be set apart. If you're not one of his, it'll be very obvious and you will be attacked. So this brings us to the second beast and we're going to spend less time on him, but he's not any less significant. He sees another beast rising out of the earth. It's not the sea, it's the earth. 
It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Very different in terms of the way it looks. It's not three beasts, it's one. It's a, it's a lamb, it's a gentle lamb with two horns, most likely smaller horns. But there's some idea of authority there, power, and it spoke like a dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Its words emulated that of Satan. And that's why he's called the false prophet because he speaks on behalf of Satan. Every prophet that ever spoke on behalf of God emulated him in the sense that they spoke his words. What's this guy going to do? He's going to speak the words of Satan. What are the words of Satan? Deception, lies, trickery, falsehood. He's the father of lies. And it says it, this false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast, the antichrist. In other words, He's been delegated authority by the Antichrist. He kind of works for him, his, his second lieutenant. And he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose mortal wound was healed. So he speaks for the dragon, he works for the Antichrist, and he gets everybody on earth to worship the Antichrist. All the inhabitants of the earth whose mortal wound was healed. Another reason why I believe this is talking about the Antichrist and not a nation. And look at what it says. It performs, it, this false prophet performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Remember what happened at Pentecost? I know you weren't there, but we're told that when the Holy Spirit came, what associated itself with his coming? Flames of fire. What does this guy do? He calls down fire. He has the ability, and the, the verb tense here, making, is repeatedly calls down fire. It's like his go-to trick. He calls down fire, and everybody's like, man, look at this guy. He's got power. He does signs and wonders. And by the signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. It's sucking in the nations to worship it and the Antichrist and Satan. He does great signs. See, he's speaking for Satan. He's working under the authority of Antichrist, but he's only got one job. His job is to get people to worship something other than God. He's a distractor. And that's why he does all these signs and wonders, so that they will worship Satan rather than God. Because remember, the 144,000 Jews are on the earth, protected by God throughout the entirety of the tribulation. They are witnessing regularly. And we're going to get introduced in another chapter later on to the two witnesses who are going to witness. And so salvation is being made available, but his job is to distract everybody from the salvation that they're hearing. Faith in Christ, right standing with God. No, 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 no. Worship Satan. And he does it through deception, delusion, and that makes him a false prophet. Now, I love going back and looking at what the, the Old Testament has to say, what God has to say about these kinds of people. Look at this in Deuteronomy. If a prophet or a dreamer dreams a dreamer of dreams, arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. In other words, it happens. He predicts something, he says something, and it happens. And associated with that, he says, let us go after other gods. In other words, he calls down fire, he does miracles, he does signs, but associated with those signs of power, he says, oh, and by the way, worship Satan. 
worship the Antichrist. Look at what it says. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. But people will do it by the droves, by the millions upon millions. They will get sucked in because everybody's looking for a savior in this world. Everybody's looking for a Messiah, whether they know it or not. Everybody's looking for a God to worship. And so what are the people going to do? Because of the false prophet, because of the Antichrist, and because of the work of Satan, they will get sucked in to the delusion. Verse 15 tells us he's got incredible power. He, he's allowed, look at this, to give breath to the image of the beast. What image of the beast? Remember, one of the things that, Satan's, uh, that Antichrist is going to do is at the midway point of the tribulation, according to Daniel chapter 9 and according to the book of Revelation, is he's going to set up an idol of himself in the holy of holies in the temple. The temple he arranged to be built so the Jews could practice worship. But he's going to set his idol up of himself in the Holy of Holies. He's going to desecrate the temple, and he's going to get rid of all worship of God in the temple, all sacrifice. And what does he do? This false prophet brings that image to life. Now, again, think about that. Think about that being broadcast on TV all around the world. This statue, whatever it looks like, whatever it's made of, comes to life, it breathes, it talks, that it might cause those who would not worship the image to be slain. Reminds me of the book of Daniel. When Daniel and his friends were thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't worship the king, the statue of the king. That's what's going to happen here. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is the most familiar part of the book of Revelation to everybody who lives in the United States. I don't know about the rest of the world, but you could go to almost anybody and talk. You ever heard of the mark of the beast? Oh yeah, 666. You know what it means? I don't have a clue. We joke about it. We laugh about it. Uh, Tuesday morning at Bible study, a guy came in and he had on a shirt that had the, the brand, um, what is it, the 6666, the four sixes, four six ranch, whatever it is. But it was kind of folded over and all you saw was three sixes. And of course, he got hammered for that because we're talking about the Antichrist. But what, what does this mean? What is this all about? The mark of the beast. I think it's literal. I think it's real. I think people will have this brand. I don't know if it's a computer chip. I don't know what it is. All I know is something's going to happen to where he will put his authority over anybody and everybody living on the earth, and they will have to worship him, obey him. He'll control finances. And verse 18 ends with this. This calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, what does this passage mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's what it's not telling us. It's not telling you to go home, get out a calculator, get out a legal pad, and start trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. People have been doing it for generations. They have created complicated mathematical codes. They've taken alphabets, and they've associated letters with them, and they've taken names like Barack Obama and they've added up the, the letters in his name and it comes up to 666 and they go, there he is. This is wisdom. No, that's lunacy. That's idiotic. It's a waste of your proverbial time. This is not telling you and I to sit down and try to calculate the number of the beast. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are living during that day. Have wisdom. Have wisdom. 
Be discerning. God is going to give them the ability to tell who this person is when he first shows up on the scene. See, God's going to protect his own. But what it's telling us is several things. He's a man, first of all. And and I don't need to really worry about all this other stuff. I don't need to know what it looks like. I don't need to know if it's a computer chip. And I know all about the stuff going on around the world where people are literally getting things stuck in their wrists so they can, you know, scan and buy stuff. Okay, I know that's happening. Is that what this is? I don't know. Technology could go so far in such a short time. We don't know what this is going to be. It could be a literal brand on the forehead for all I know. It doesn't matter. The fact is, it's a mark, and we don't need to sit around trying to figure out what all this stuff means, what 666 means. Some have said, well, six is the the number for man because seven is the number of perfection, and it's listed three times because it's done for emphasis. Man, that sounds really great. I just don't have a clue. And again, it really doesn't matter. Here's what the passage tells me. He's going to be a man. It's going to be a man who will have a tremendous power. He will be identifiable. He will be recognizable. And he says, those who are wise will be able to calculate the number. God's going to give the capacity to those living on the earth to know who this individual is so that they can stay away from him, so they can not be sucked into the delusion and they can escape the deception. See, at the end of the day, what is this all about? It's about the power of God. Now, I'm going to end with this. It's not in your notes, but this passage kind of hit me at the last minute. And it's Paul talking to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he says. Now, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, I think it's talking again about the rapture. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. There was news being disseminated that was not true to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, we've missed it. He came and we didn't go. Well, that'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? Well, they're afraid. He said, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Speaking of the Antichrist, the son of destruction who opposes and who exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? See, he's telling them there's a day coming when this guy's going to show up on the scene, but don't worry. There are some things that are going to happen before then. One of the main ones is we're going to be taken. The church is going to be taken. We'll go to be with him. We'll meet him in the air. We'll be with him. But he literally tells them that there is an individual coming, a real man living on a real earth who has real power given to him by a real Satan, and it is going to be Katie Bar the door. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So if you get anything else out of this before we go to your questions, if you know anybody who doesn't know the truth, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Because guess what? I don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back, but if he comes back today, guess what starts tomorrow? the tribulation. And you have friends and loved ones who need to know about the truth of Jesus Christ because if you go, they get left behind. So tell them the truth. Here's your discussion questions. I want somebody to read these two passages. They're very short. 1 John 2, 22 through 23. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. In what ways do we see the spirit of Antichrist in our own day? 
See, there's a spirit of Antichrist already alive in the world. It's all around us. What does it look like? How do we resist it? It's all about deception. It's all about delusion. Why do you think God would allow Satan to replicate the resurrection of Jesus by bringing the Antichrist back to life? Why would he let that happen? And then finally, think about the false prophet. If Satan is the counterfeit for God, Antichrist is the false Christ, in what ways is the false prophet a really poor replica of Jesus Christ? But he still deludes people. And here's the deal, guys. All of this is alive and well today. It's all happening around us. People are so deluded. That's why the truth is so necessary. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. I pray that you would bless the time around the tables. Bless their conversation, and may we walk out of this room with a greater desire to share the gospel than we've ever had before, because the days are short, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.